If you would, open your Bibles to 1 Peter as we continue our series in this marvelous letter. You heard me announce this morning the series on, on Sunday night is over tonight. It'll be ending, but our series will go on until uh, we are done, and so that's going to be for months to go. But 1 Peter chapter 2, we're in verses 21 through 25, and let me just read them, and then I'll pray and we can begin. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually straying like sheep, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Let's pray. Father, these are such incredible words, such incredible reality to us about how your son suffered and died, and yet he was the brilliant, silent one. We ask that you would give us help this hour. Help me, Lord, to communicate the things that I have understood and that you have allowed me to get through study, and please let me communicate what you have taught me uh, to these precious saints of yours. And I ask this in Christ's name, amen. Well, we have an unspeakable privilege this morning to really look at, I think, a portion of Scripture that we've just read that is not only one that exalts and extols Jesus Christ on the day that we set aside on Sunday to extol Him, but we also find in this very particular passage itself that in 1 Peter, you have the very heartbeat of the great apostle himself in this section. Nowhere in all of the letter's body is the Lord Jesus Christ uplifted, magnified, and showcased in such a way as he is here in the verses before us. It's here that we see Christ's awesome strength on display and an example of who he is painted in the very shades of crimson. His work illustrated here as heroic pictures, supernatural self-control. His perfection is presented in such a shocking way, and his role is so vividly and extraordinarily in view. It's here this morning that we're going to see something that's very, very shocking in a sense, but also something very, very inviting, and that is the coming together, if you will, of three different stories. The coming together of three intertwined stories that actually, through the contextual setting of this letter, are going to help us to understand the great need of a slave people like we are as the church for strengthening the profound observations of eyewitnesses, unforgettable uh, weaknesses and growth, and also the stunning portrayal of an unmatched, unmatched prototype of suffering as he is going to demonstrate for us the source of every true and lasting power and might where it truly resides. All of this and so much more, and I don't even know if I'm going to get to all of it today, is going to be here in this message that I've titled, The Silent Strength of a Sinless Slave. The Silent Strength of a Sinless Slave. And we are going to see that's exactly what our author is trying to give for us here. The Apostle Peter is writing for us here these words, a story that is really unmatched, a story about unmatchable strength and also unmatchable suffering. 
In his much-circulated book in 1896, Charles M. Sheldon wrote the famous In His Steps. And in this book, he speaks of a fictitious Reverend Henry Maxwell, who, as he studies this passage before us in 1 Peter and wants to communicate the message to his congregation, he says the following words at the very end of the book. He says to them, the Christianity that attempts to suffer by proxy is not the Christianity of Christ. Each individual Christian businessman, citizen, needs to follow in his steps along the path of personal sacrifice to him. There is not a different path today from that of Jesus' own time. The same path, the call of dying the century and the new one soon to be is a call for a new discipleship, a new following of Jesus, more like the early apostolic Christianity when the disciples left all and literally followed the master. Nothing but a discipleship of this kind can face the destructive selfishness of the age with any hope of overcoming it. It was in these words that really started and sparked this whole revival of a sense that you've heard about this WWJD, what would Jesus do? That's where all that came from. With people having a movement, it became popular for a little while, and then it became a bunch of bumper stickers and some bracelets that people would wear. But nevertheless, in the heart of it, it was truly coming from this passage, which was in his steps, walk like he walked, be like he is. But what drove Reverend Henry Maxwell to the conclusion of what he said in this book is something that I want to think about today. What are the penetrating truths that struck the heart of millions of people that actually read that book and who have read this passage? Well, contextually, this is the issue before us, that the issue is of unjust suffering, right? If you've been with us through 1 Peter, you know this. We're dealing with not only the unjust suffering of the past, but also the unjust suffering of every Christian in the present. The verses, verses 21 to 23, really kind of permeate all throughout the book is the main shock, the main shock of the whole letter that we're to do everything that we're to do and to suffer the way we are to suffer for the sake of Christ. And so Peter writes to a group of early Christians who are on a whole alienated from their culture, alienated from their homes, cast into Roman slavery as was the great majority of the people who lived in Rome at that time, and expected to be submitting to earthly masters with authority over them in a complete way. And so Peter tells them with this understanding that these early Christians are to be submissive regardless to what kind of earthly master they had, whether they were unreasonable masters or even reasonable ones. And he does this by giving them both a mandate to consider and a model to follow. And we're going to see that because this is, this is what he's asking of them. This is an anti-natural, anti-natural counterintuitive uh, proclamation that he makes. So against every human impulse that we might find and might possess that we have to have both a theoretical and also a practical side of the issue to be presented before us. So theoretically, he tells us first that their mandate, that's in verses 19 and 20, is to obey their earthly masters. This is from last time that we met. Even to the point of suffering unjustly because it finds favor with God. Suffering for God's sake finds favor with God. And then twice in our text that I just read, of finding favor, verse 19, for this finds favor for the sake of conscience towards God. A person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. Twice in that section, he starts to use this idea also in verse 20 of favor. He says, but when you do what is right, 
very end of verse 20, and suffer for it, this finds favor with God. So this idea of suffering for the purpose of finding favor with God, not to gain salvation, but to please the Lord is what is in mind here. So obviously, Peter used this idea of favor to motivate these slaves and how to suffer because of it. Favor in the Greek, the translated favor here, is actually the word where we get grace. That is what we have in the Greek. It's that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, and loveliness. It refers to a kind of kindness that has been given to us by God by exerting his holy influence upon our souls that keeps us close to Christ, keeps strengthening us, increasing us in our faith, increasing us in our knowledge, increasing us in our infection, affection, and kindles in us a desire for Christian virtue. So this is our mandate. This is our mandate of how it is to, we are to suffer. This is a motivation now because it finds favor with God. That's what's going to satisfy the slave. The one that is truly satisfied is a slave of Christ, and you are satisfied because you understand your role to God. True satisfaction, true bliss, true vindication, if you will, comes to earthly slaves through comprehending that obedience to God, even to the point of suffering, is the kind of life that God pours blessing upon. But then Peter switches, and he goes away from just the mandate to now he's going to talk about the model. How do we see this? How is this being modeled to us? So what he does now is he gives them an example, listen to this, of another slave, a perfect slave. He gives them an example of one who was unlike any other slave who had ever lived, a slave who had never sinned, who had never disobeyed his father in heaven, who had possessed the greatest strength imaginable of all men who have ever lived, but not a strength that comes from his rebellion, not a strength that comes from his need to escape the worries of this life. His need for escape was no longer there. He wanted to go back to his heavenly father, but his strength came from a silent suffering because his desire to gain God's ultimate favor was consuming his perfected soul. And that model, of course, is the Lord Jesus Christ, is the model of true Christian suffering. And so these readers of Peter's letter, these slaves who were caught up in all these harsh different circumstances of ridicule and pain, had for themselves a great and sinless slave as their model that they could follow who possessed the greatest strength of anyone by his silence and the way he suffered immeasurably to gain immeasurable glory. So this is the premise before us this morning. If you're taking notes, we have three pictures of Christ's strength. I want to say it that way, three portraits, if you will, of Christ's strength displayed in his slavery to the Father so that we might have the strength to endure as slaves of Christ as well. Three portraits, three pictures of Christ's perfect strength as he pursued his Father's favor so that we too might find favor in our souls with the delight and comfort that knows from satisfying God. And I want to take this note to you. I want you to know that Peter is going to do this very, very interestingly by interweaving the need of his audience and the example of his model in the remembrance of his own perspective of, of Peter's story. And you're going to see that here as well. And we'll uncover that as time unfolds. So first, if you're taking notes, number one, the first picture that we have here before us is the strength of Christ's suffering. Just write that down, the strength of Christ's suffering. That's what we see first in verse 21. Peter writes, For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, 
leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps. So these saints are to understand, to comprehend the very purpose of life, the very purpose that they were called by God unto salvation was to suffer in the likeness of Christ, their example in perfect submission in his slavery to God. Now, it's important to remember that during this time, we talked about this last time, it was written around uh, AD 64, give or take a few years, we can't be positive, but we know it was under the writing on the time of the uh, Nero's persecution, either right before or during, that these historians tell us that there was about 60 million people in this early time who were considered slaves and were under Roman rule. We established that last time. And this common situation that Peter's audience found themselves in as well was that they were, as it says in verse 18, that they were going to be literally house slaves. They were going to be those who are, uh, those who are going to be considered servants or house slaves being submissive to their Greek overseers. But one much deeper level, the people knew that they were also another kind of slave as well. We covered this, that you're a slave of Christ. For the verse 16 tells us, in a few verses up, bond slaves of God. Again, that is the word doulos, which is actually the word slave. Therefore, the vast majority of those whom Peter is writing to are literally both slaves and slaves of God. Their occupation, what they do, uh, what they have committed themselves to as earthly masters, they're slaves to earthly masters as well as slaves to the heavenly master. You know, it's a side point real quick. I won't say it, uh, which one, but one of my sons came to me the other day, and he goes, so why do we call it the master's seminary, the master's college? I go, well, the Lord Jesus Christ is master. And he goes, oh, I thought it had to do with a degree. And I go, no, 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 it's not a getting a master's degree from there. It's, it's you know, I, I won't tell you who said it. But anyway, <laughs> I thought he knew that. But anyway, we're, we're slaves to our master. And that's why it's the Master Seminary, the Master's University. That's where, we, that's where we live. And the truth is, Scripture speaks of all people, just so you know, already being slaves. Everyone is a slave. All people who have or will or ever lived are slaves, either to righteousness or to sin. So we are literally, the, the entirety of our lives, not in a physical sense, but a spiritual sense, caught in that paradigm. The Apostle Paul writes in Romans 6, 16 through 18, that all people are either slaves to sin or slaves to righteousness. So even once you are freed from one form of slavery, do not stop being a slave. You still are a slave. It's just the nature of your slavery changes. You might note that just in Ephesians 6, 6. He says, not way to be slaves. Be obedient to those who are your masters according to flesh with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ, but not by way of eye service as men pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In fact, we see this in how Peter and actually the other New Testament writers uh, who are inspired by God and who are apostles, first and foremost, always saw themselves that way. I might not be able to go through every single verse here, but if you go to Philippians 1, you're going to see that the way that Paul even looks at his own life, how he considers himself, he says, Paul and Timothy bondservants or slaves of Christ Jesus. Uh, You have the same thing when you go to Romans chapter 1. Again, how does Paul introduce himself, even though Peter is our author of the book we're looking at now, just to kind of get a sense of how common this is for everything, he calls himself, again, Paul, a bondservant, a slave of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle. 
You see that in Galatians 1.10, Colossians 4.12, uh, James 1.1, 2 Peter 1. So slave comes first. The idea of our identity of who we are comes first. But probably the most remarkable truth is that Jesus Christ himself was the ultimate slave was the ultimate slave of God, and his service as God's father's slave, as God the father's slave, was in doing his will. You don't have to turn there, but if you go to Philippians 2, a very, very common and very popular uh, thing to have for theologians to kind of digress on, but it says in Philippians 2, talking about Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Christ is the due loss of God. Christ is the due loss of God. And the life of this due loss, the purpose of his life was to please the Father, John 8, 29, I always do what is pleasing to him. Hebrews 10, 7, quoting Psalm 40, verse 7, I have come to do your will, O God. John 5, verse 30, I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So Peter writes to slaves about slavery, using the sinless slave as their example and picturing his strength as being the hope for their survival. It's a very hard thing, I understand, and you might be thinking the same thing even as I speak, that you come to a point in your life where you have to admit that you have struggles, uh, that you have uh, day-in, day-out heartache and heartbreak, that many times we're not as strong as we purport to be, as we would like to be. We feel weak. We feel worn out. We feel battle-worn from the precious life that God has given us, and yet exhausting as well. But we're Americans. And because we're Americans, we resist this, um, this kind of weakness, this, this understanding of weakness. We resist the horrible title of victim, right? No one wants that, that looms around every single corner. We are so paralyzed by this idea and this perspective that we're going to be able to make it, we tell ourselves. We'll be able to pull ourselves up on our own bootstraps and make it happen. We're going we're gonna to become numb to the weaknesses that we feel. We're going to cover our lostness in life with, with anything that we can, sometimes alcohol, sometimes drugs, sometimes whatever people do, to feel no longer the pulse of their pain. And so when adversity comes, and it does, when trials knock on our door, when heartache and pressure and ridicule kind of sort of invade our world, we grit our teeth and we grab our gusto and we play the part. We just play the part like everybody else plays the part. And we don't allow ourselves to admit how really, really simply weak we are. No true strength. No true vitality. We are like in some ways the children of Israel. After Moses died and Joshua was commissioned by God to go to the promised land, if you remember that section, and to defeat those people, and they were, they were tired and they were worn out and they were fatigued, and God tells Joshua in Joshua to tell the Israelites what? Be strong and courageous. 
Be strong and courageous, for I will be with you, verse, chapter 1, verse 6. Be strong and courageous by doing what I tell you, chapter 1, verse 7. Be strong and courageous, for I am with you wherever you go, chapter 1, verse 9. Be strong and courageous to put to death the rebellious, verse 18. Be strong and courageous and do not fear the enemy, chapter 10, verse 23. So we want to be strong, and we want to be courageous, And we want to be courageous, but how can you do that when Peter says that you have to let your earthly masters be perverse and crooked and still obey them, if you're following my thought? How can we be so strong and courageous when the New Testament scriptures tell us that we must not resist an evil person, that if they slap our right cheek, we must turn to the other one as well? If anyone wants our shirt, we must give them our coat says, if someone forces you to go one mile, go two miles. What kind of strength is that? Where does our strength come from? It comes from, according to Peter, from making God's favor the most desirable thing in life. Making his favor the most desirable thing. And it comes when the favor of God is so surpassing is so all-consuming that it becomes, again, the motivation for Christian endurance in the heart of conflict. For it is then, when seeking his favor, not his salvation, salvation is gained to you by faith, by the faith he grants you and by repentance that he grants you, but the kind of favor knowing that you're pleasing God, the one that made you, it comes when we find that suffering for God's favor is better than any other goal in life, more than mere motivation or a thing to be desired, but it comes our very purpose of life, the very reason we exist. And the purpose was nowhere greater model for us than in Christ. Christ's purpose was perfect, and his desire to to have the Father's favor bestowed on him was beyond anything we could comprehend or think. And Christ's strength came from trusting that his suffering gained his father's favor. We know this very well when you go to the book of Hebrews, one of the most famous passages in Hebrews chapter 12. It it just takes a moment to describe this beautiful relationship when it says, after going through the hall of, of faith, it says in chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore, since we have so great a cloud of witnesses surrounding us, talking about the saints of old, Let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. Why? Because he is the author and perfecter of faith, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So it was Christ and the joy that was before him that allowed him to endure the cross to please the Father. To to please the Father, and through Christ's model, then we are given the strength that we need to become obedient slaves unto him as well. So Christians find joy not in suffering. We find joy in suffering when we must, if it gains the grace of God, if it gains God's favor. Peter knew this. Peter knew this more than almost any other disciple He knew it so much more even before Christ's resurrection, but definitely, of course, after. Before Christ's crucifixion, there was only perhaps a kind of denial that 
sinless son of God would ever have to endure shame and suffering. The disciples did not believe that. The disciples did not want to know that. They, they didn't want to come face to face with the fact that the, the suffering servant was a suffering servant. In fact, Peter himself, who was a very strong man, a man who was not only just a fisherman, but strong-headed, strong in his belief, strong in his abilities to fight. He was the guy who actually took off the servant's ear, remarkably resistant man. Even he argued with Jesus about Jesus' own path and his own way. But when Jesus predicted that he would suffer by rejecting the Jewish leaders and be killed, Peter pulled him aside. And he rebuked him, and he said to him such harsh nonsense that the Lord had to, of course, tell him his purposes were aligned with Satan. Peter thought he was strong, but when suffering came before Jesus rose from the dead, Peter lost all his strength and all of his joy and all of his courage and all of his desire was instantly dashed to pieces. He saw his Lord die on the cross He saw the one that he thought would never have to suffer to die. But once the resurrection came, once Christ rose up from the dead and ascended to the Father in glorious victory, once Pentecost came and empowerment by the Holy Spirit presents himself to Peter, Peter's strength returned and did his joy. We've read about this in Acts 5.40. We read that after the council called the apostles in, he, he had them whipped and, and flogged. And Peter then, of course, during the time that we've been uh, through this whole COVID situation, we've referred to this passage many times in Acts chapter 5. But he says in verse 40 and 41, the following, which is totally the new Peter. Uh, it says in chapter 5, verse 40, they took his advice and after calling the apostles in, they flogged them and ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and then released them. So they went on their way from the presence of the council rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they kept right on teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. You see, Peter found his strength. He found his strength after Pentecost. He found his strength after the ascension. And he found his strength in the pattern of the suffering Christ and the suffering of how a slave should suffer for Christ produced in him a profound, unrivaled sense of deep, lasting joy. And he writes about this in the beginning of this letter because he had gained the favor of God. You know, it's a very interesting word Peter uses here in verse 21, back to 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 21, it says here that it's, in fact, the only time it's actually used in the New Testament. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example, an example to follow in his steps. It's hupogramon, and that word in and of itself literally means under the writing. It's a very interesting word to consider, but it's important for us to do that. Perhaps Peter, when he's under the writing, is thinking of a schoolboy when he was young, and he was using this word as kind of reminiscent of the day when he was in school, and you had to copy uh, your writing, and you had to copy it under a schoolmaster who would write out letters and simple sentences, and then you would copy it and trace it. And it's the copying and tracing of these letters is what this word means, under the writing, to trace the writing. That's an example. Maybe he remembered that. 
Maybe he remembered how painfully he tried as a young boy slowly and steadily to learn how to write letters the way they were intended, just like he saw himself faltering and stumbling as he tried and tried and tried to trace the steps of Christ in every action of his master imperfectly. But he did learn, and he did follow, and he did find strength, and he did see Christ's model of slavery for his master, even right down to the joy of pleasing God. But the way the strength is always filled with weakness, and we can't get away from that. Alexander McLaren, great Scottish pastor, said, you and I are at the very worst, but at the edge of the storm which broke in all its dreadful fury over his head. We love to go, but a little way down the hillside while he descended to the very bottom. We love to drink, but a little of the cup which he drained the last drop of and held it up empty and reversed, showing that nothing trickled from it, and exclaimed, the cup which my father hath given me, I have drunk. No one was like Christ. No one suffered like him. And that strength is first seen in our first point. So not only have we just seen a picture of Christ's strength in suffering, but number two, if you're taking notes, also I want you to see a picture of the strength of Christ's silence. Not only the strength in Christ's suffering, but now the strength in Christ's silence. You see that in verse 22 from 23. Who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. And while suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. I think there's always been a connection, most of us have, between suffering and speech. I think there's always a connection that we have because one of the key components in life that relieves somebody of suffering is the ability to speak about it, to talk about it, to to counsel or to comfort or to even at times challenge seems like a further, kind of a fitting response to suffering. So when we hear somebody who is suffering in silence, we commiserate with them, we, we try to understand it, we try to identify the pain with them that they must be experiencing because we understand by the comparison the cruel nature of that kind of suffering, to suffer without being able to express it. It must be unbearable, we think, to suffer in silence because many times it's that very opportunity to express ourselves, the ability to defend ourselves that that is a motivation for us to endure that kind of suffering because at least we get to confront the evil. And then we read these words that Jesus uttered no threats. What what kind of strength is that kind of suffering? Silent suffering? I have never understood the old movie type of the strong and silent. Have you ever heard that? He's the strong and silent type. I I never got that. Um, That was always kind of portrayed in film as like, you know, the attractive kind of man, but uh, perhaps I could never see what would be so attractive about silence. Um, And yet Peter here says that Jesus... The most, the, the most attractive, the most uh, attractive man was silent in his suffering. He was the most approachable man, and yet he suffered in silence. And the irony is that Christ wasn't always that way, and you know that. 
He spoke with authority. He spoke as one who, Matthew tells us, that shocked his listeners because no man ever spoke like he did. Jesus could silence the wind and waves with a word. When he spoke in the Gospel of John, a Roman cohort, at least 2,200 men, fell to their knees as soon as he spoke a word. As God, very God, he spoke the world into existence by the power of his word. With the mere sound of his voice, the dead ears of Lazarus went up after being in the grave for days, and he began alive with Christ's command. He became alive. So why would he, whom John the apostle called the word, be silent? What would be the possible reason or issue that could be so great that he would quiet his mouth? His silence was not, as his opponents believed, a sign of his weakness. His silence was rather, listen, a sign of his strength, a sign of his strength. Why was he silent? Why was he silent? Well, let's just think through a few reasons. He was silent first and foremost to fulfill prophecy, to fulfill prophecy. Peter here is quoting from Isaiah 53, and that's a passage in the Old Testament known to the Jews as the portion containing the suffering servant. And when you go to Isaiah and you look at what it says here, I won't read the entire part to you, but I commend it to you to read at a different time. It speaks of the Messiah saying, surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried, yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging were healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray, each of us to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He is the one, it says, who was the silent. It says in verse 7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before his shears, he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off the land of the living? Peter's quoting this passage. It is very, very possible that Peter had never actually made the connection of this passage with Jesus while Jesus was living. It was a section of Scripture that had become, um, of course, known to him as a little boy. All the Jews knew, of course, of Isaiah. Was there any doubt once the Spirit of God brought back to his memory all of the significance of what Christ said and did that the temptation to inflict massive amounts of self-loathing came upon Peter for as Christ suffered the exact circumstances noted in Isaiah 53? Think about this. Peter was there watching it live. Peter was there as it was happening, witnessing the prophetic, prophetic coming together of and fulfillment of this prophecy. He was there He spoke like no other person spoke who was ever born into the world, and yet he saw him standing there, not speaking, spit from others' mouths in his beard, mocking him, dripping with blood, not gritting his teeth, not allowing himself to to resist in his hatred, but in perfect self-control. Perfect self-control, enduring the cost, 
knowing exactly what he was doing because Christ lived to please the Father, because the Father's favor was everything. He was a slave. He was a slave, and it would take a slave to lead the slaves in perfect obedience. And this is where Peter is talking to us about this model of slavery to God the Father and strength in that through silence. He was on trial for his life, if you remember. He was on trial for his life, and Peter stood there watching the trial a few yards away, except Peter didn't know that his trial was happening as well. Blow by blow, Peter saw in himself the horrid opposite of all the glorious master was exemplifying to him in that event. And yet it wouldn't be until days later that he would finally understand what it was that had happened, that he was witnessing the prophetic fulfillment of Isaiah in his master, who he thought would never suffer. You know, the, the contrast is pretty major when you look at it. Here are just a few of these things. I won't recite all of them. Peter, when he was there, it says, of course, almost immediately after his admission to the courtyard, he denied Christ the first time. John writes, the servant girl who kept the door said to Peter, you are not also one of the man's disciples, are you? And he said, John 18, 17, I am not. I am not. Jesus never committed sin with his mouth. And there he is in silence and Peter's watching and he commits sin immediately. Comparison of the gospel writers suggests that the dialogue that followed was more than just a single sentence challenge and retort. It wasn't just that. It became a profound, prolonged exchange between Peter and the servant girl and the others. The young woman insisted, no, you are one of his disciples, and he vehemently denied it. John reports that the girl asked, you are not also one of this man's disciples, are you? And again, John 18, 17, I am not. Matthew adds more detail. Now Peter sat outside the courtyard, and the servant girl came to him saying, you also are with the Jesus of Galilee, but he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you are saying. Peter, the one who writes the text inspired by God, is the one who denied him in the presence of the silenced one who spoke no sin. The girl not only addressed her accusations to Peter, but she attempted to expose him to the people who were around him at the fire, warming their hands. She says, this man also was with him, Luke twenty-two fifty-six, And Peter replied with a flat denial that he didn't know anybody, or he didn't know Jesus. Woman, I do not know him, verse 57. There was no deceit in our Lord's mouth, but Peter was deceitful. He did know him, and he lied. And he lied right as the suffering servant was committing no sin. When he'd gone out to the gateway, another girl saw him and to those who were there. This fellow also was Jesus of Nazareth. But again, he says, I do not know this man. So we go on and on with the declaration of Peter thinking back with his memory that's been given to him by the Holy Spirit to be able to sit there and go, God, forgive me. What have I done as I was sitting there not even believing in the prophecy that you would be the suffering one I'm sinning against you in the very way that you are restraining yourself from sin? There was no revile. There was no revile in Christ. And yet it says in Matthew 26, 74, that Peter, by the time they kept pushing him, said, I swear I do not know this man. Cursing and swearing were probably kind of like him just being vulgar. All kinds of words coming out of his mouth in the presence of, of course, the sinless one. And there stood Christ, silent. 
And the scripture says that when he saw Christ, he looked at him, and they met eye to eye, and he remembered him the cock crowed. His strength, Christ's strength manifested in his silence because it was a sign of not only him being the sinless one, not only was it a sign that he was going to fulfill scripture, but secondly, if you're just taking notes or thinking through this, it was a sign of his trust in the Father. It was a sign of the trust in his Father. Why did Jesus keep silent? Because he wanted to fulfill not only scripture, but also because it was a sign of his love for the Father, his complete trust of him. Now, we have to learn a lot about how to emulate the Lord. And to do that, just to help you a little bit here, I think it's wrong, and maybe somebody's thinking it even right now, that Jesus never spoke in that time. He did. Uh, he, he wasn't completely silent in every single moment. He did speak, and it's recorded that he was, had spoken, both to the high priest and to Pilate. But it was when he spoke and when he didn't speak that was so important. It was to whom he spoke and to whom he didn't speak, and it was what he spoke and what he didn't speak that truly makes the entirety of his silence stand out. Let me just show you briefly what I'll call Christ's seven silences. Christ's seven silences. Follow along with me as I go. Just Matthew 26. All you have to do is write this down. Matthew 26, silence number one. Silence about false testimony concerning him. He was quiet. He never addressed their false accusations. Silence number two, Matthew 27, 12. Silent again about false accusation before Pilate and the elders. Silence number three, Matthew 27, 14, silence to all charges against him by Pilate yet again. Silence number four, Luke 23, 9, silent before Herod, not speaking. Silence number five, John 19, 9, silent before Pilate yet again. Silence number six, Matthew 27, 27, and it's implied before the soldiers that he did not speak as they mocked him. And silence number seven, Luke 23, 39, silent before the criminals, again implied on the cross. Before, of course, they spoke and he said, today you'll be with me in paradise. William Shakespeare said, the silence often of pure innocence persuades when speaking fails. And in all of this, he was silent. But when he did speak, he committed no sin. Look at, again, back in First Peter at, beginning of verse 22, 1 Peter 2, verse 22, who committed no sin, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And all this he was silent, and he didn't speak, he committed no sin. So why would he do that? There was more than a mere fulfilling of prophecy, though that itself is incredible and awesome. But Jesus had a silent strength to picture a willingness to prove himself and his trust before the Father, to to portray his sinlessness, to provoke their hatred, to procure their condemnation, and to provide an example as a slave. Why? says here, he entrusted, at the very bottom of verse 23, he entrusted, literally in the Greek, to hand over. He handed over to deliver something to someone to keep, use, and take care of, to manage. I entrust myself, kept delivering myself over to the Father. I gave him 
Jesus did, his wounded heart. He gave him everything. He gave him his life. In fact, in the garden, he says, not your will, not my will, but your will be done. This is the picture of the suffering servant. His blessed face pummeled by hand, fist, the mob didn't even probably look like a human after a while. His back lacerated by the Romans, scourged so that it was just one massive, open, raw, quivering piece of flesh. His heart torn with anguish because of the bitter, caustic, malicious words thrown at him. And yet, his suffering, his submission, his silence was not a sign of his weakness, but of his power, of his true, true strength. There is a third element. And... I'm not going to be able to get to it today. The next time I speak on 1 Peter, I'm going to. And that's just verses 24 and 25. And that would be not only do we see the portrait of the strength of Christ's suffering and the strength of Christ's silence, but we're going to see the strength of Christ's sacrifice. The strength of Christ's sacrifice, and that will be next time. What is the takeaway this morning, I hope, for all of this? Uh, Many people say, but I'm not Jesus. I'm not perfect. I'm not sinless. How can I be silent like that in the midst of all the persecution? But you can know what pleases God. And you can know what it is that you should do to to gain his favor. And that will include suffering for doing what is right. Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for the amount of time that you gave me today. And I just thank you for the fact that even though we will... Pick this up another time because those verses, Father, you know are just too profound, too too immense to leave quickly. But, Father, thank you for the fact that in Christ we have a model. We are, each of us have gone astray, each of us to our own way. Each of us has, even since the time that we've come to Christ, have battled resentment, battled embitterment, battled arguing and refusal to to give up our side of the coin. And yet, Lord, I pray that you give us wisdom in that, that we might win the world by our silence when we are suffering unjustly, when the world tries to portray us as those who are fanatical, who follow a resurrected Christ. Help us to soften the blow of what they might say by showing them that we are like our master. We are like the one who saved us and gave himself for us. And give us the courage and the strength that we need. In Christ's precious name, amen.